Well, before um, I give you the intro to the book of Ezra, so now you can make your way over to Ezra, um, I, I, I need to kind of give you a little review somewhat. It's going to be a long review, intro, getting... So if you start dazing and, and kind of going like, enough, stand up in the back, whatever you need to do, move around a little bit. Uh, because before we, we can get into Ezra, we've got to kind of talk about how we even have gotten to this place. And and not, not just in Scripture, but on Thursday nights, you know, back in, in November, at the end of the November, uh, we finished our study in the Book of the Kings. Uh, we had been in First and Second Kings for almost all of last year, however it went. Um, and, and for that matter, we, we, we finished or we got to the end of Second Chronicles as well, because Second Chronicles is like the parallel story that goes with Second Kings that, you know, one's from, from the, the, the perspective of, of, of just the politics and all that went on uh, through Kings. But, but through Chronicles, we see more of a different perspective from more of the priestly uh, view. And, and so we got both of those stories and they kind of gelled together. And so we've kind of finished those two things, you know, Second uh, Kings and Second Chronicles at the same time. And we ended up with the final deportation of the southern kingdom of Judah, you know. And, and so they, they were now taken into ca- captivity into Babylon. And again, I'm probably going to give you a lot of numbers again like I did a few weeks ago. Um, again, write them down like they don't fall asleep on them. But, but again... We, they, they get taken into captivity. The final deportation happens in 586 B.C. Now, the northern kingdom, if you know, if you remember, the northern kingdom of Israel had already been taken into captivity by the Assyrians, and they were both headed north. The Assyrian, um, it, it was more on the west side of what we know now today as, as Iraq and Syria, way up north towards that side near Turkey. And, and now, you know, the, the southern kingdom had been taken to Babylon, which was more on the eastern side. But the northern kingdom of Israel, taken captivity, um, they had, it was about 135 years earlier than the southern kingdom had t- been taken captive. And, and it was around the year 721 B.C. And so now all the nation of Israel has been displaced. They're all gone. That's where we kind of finished off in that area uh, in November, the end of November. And so the first two weeks of December, um, I covered the history of Israel. And if you were with us, again, I tried to cover as much as possible. I know I gave you guys tons of information, stuff that I held back, but a lot of numbers, a lot of dates, a lot of stuff like that. But we actually went from the very beginning, from Adam all the way to the death of Moses, which was for me incredible. And again, you know, there was just so much that happened as, as God was bringing a people to a certain place. And it wasn't until they got to the wilderness area when Moses finally goes and meets with God up in Mount Sinai that it was at that time that he makes this covenant with them. This covenant relationship that he builds with them. And that is when they become a nation. Not just a people, but a nation. And then Moses, poor guy, man, as much as he has done all he could for this, this, this people, this nation, God says, oh, and by the way, man, 
a little later, you're not going to go into the promised land. I know you've done all the work, bro, but you're not going. It's kind of cool, though, that he let him see the promised land, but he didn't get to go in and he died. I find it fascinating that in the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses did get to kind of sneak into the promised land when he ministered to Jesus, but be that as it may. Um, in the second study of the history of Israel, we actually went from, uh, Ju- uh, from uh, Joshua all the way up until the Babylonian captivity. And we kind of skipped a lot of the kings and stuff because that's what we had p- covered. But we, we basically got to when Saul became king and when the monarchy came in. And then from there, we just kind of got to the end uh, of the Babylonian captivity. Now, it was during that time uh, of captivity that we would see some of the exiled prophets come on the scene. Now, we don't have a lot of the detail of what was going on there, but that's where we get the book of Daniel, the book of Ezekiel, and the book of of Obadiah. And Obadiah was probably the first of those three writings, but those three guys, they had been taken captive. Uh, Some believe that maybe Obadiah skipped it, but he would be going in that direction. Um, but be that as it may, he was probably there. And so um, there, there was this period that God had preordained and knew would happen that would take a period of 70 years. And that, that's what was now happening in this Babylonian captivity that would be 70 years of being held captive. And the reason for this 70-year this period was because of the judgment that was coming because of their idolatrous ways. How they kind of followed in the same way as the northern kingdom that just, towards the end, the, the kings were just becoming evil, even though they had a lot of good kings. Towards the end, they just continued going back to the high places and stuff and, and worshiping other gods. But the main reason, mainly because of their disobedience of not letting the, the land rest every seventh year, which was important to God for some reason. And, 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 and I think that part of that, and again, when my, my son-in-law shares about agriculture, he does talk to us about the, the fact that, that the land has to rest to get the nutrients back. But, but God wanted the, the nation of Israel to trust him. And I, I truly believe that's what the whole Sabbath thing is all about, that, that you would rest on the, sab- on, on the seventh day. And, and even through the manna, I'll provide enough on the sixth day to get you through the seventh. And he had told the nation of Israel, Plow the land, cultivate the land, do all you can. And in the sixth year, I'll give you more than you need and it'll carry you through that year. But can you imagine these people going, man, what a bounty, man. You know how many cars I can buy? How many chariots I can buy with all this money that has come in? Man, how, what's it, what's it going to look like next year? So they just never let the land rest. And it's interesting because the first deportation that happens uh, in the nation of Israel was in 605 BC. And I shared this a, a while back with you guys. And, and it was around that time period of six, uh, 605 BC that, that the, the deportation started happening. But 490 years earlier than that is when Eli the priest died. And it's huge because when he dies and he was more in the northern kingdom, that was before the split, the, the, the city of Shiloh also was, was destroyed. And that is where they used to have the worship. 
And so it wasn't so much, and those 490 years are important, not so much because it was when, when Eli, the priest, had died, but because of what happened to Shiloh and what stopped happening in Shiloh um, because of it was destroyed that the nation of Israel, that's when they stopped observing for sure the seventh year Sabbath. And so in those 490 years, they missed 70 years of, of letting the, the land rest. And so God was going to let his land rest. <laughs> and, and he would cause all this to come about because this is the promised land that he gave them and told them to take care of it, to tend to it. And they just kind of disobeyed in that way. And this is what what is said in Jeremiah chapter 7, and I'll read, again, I'm going to give you some scriptures so you can write these things down. But in Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 12 to 14, it says this, but, now, but go now to my place, which is in Shiloh, where I set my name at first, at the first, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel, the northern kingdom. Verse 13, and now because you have done all these works, says the Lord, and I spoke to you rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear, and I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house, which is called by my name, the temple down in, in Jerusalem, which in which you trust, and to this place, which I gave to you and your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh. And so now he's predicting, he's, he's prophesying that's what's going to happen. What happened in Shiloh will also happen in Jerusalem, which was south of Shiloh. <coughs> he basically says the same thing Jeremiah does in, in chapter 26 uh, again. But Leviticus, and I shared these verses again last time, but Leviticus 26, and I think they're vital for us to understand. Uh, Leviticus 26, 43 to 46 says the land also shall be left empty by them and will enjoy its Sabbath while it lies desolate without them. They will accept their guilt because they despise my judgments and because their souls abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, nor will I abhor them to utterly destroy them and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant of their ancestors whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of all the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. These are the statutes and judgments and laws which the Lord made between himself and the children of Israel on Mount Sinai by the hand of Moses. And so that's where we're kind of bringing this culmination. And so when we get to the end of, of 2 Chronicles chapter 36, um, verses 21 and 22, or 20, 20 and 21, it says this, because that's towards the end. It says, and those who escape from the sword, he carries away to Babylon, there, where they become servants to him and his sons and tell the rule of the king of Persia to fulfill the word which the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah uh, said by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land has enjoyed her Sabbath. As long as, they, as she lays desolate, she kept Sabbath. 
to fulfill 70 years. And so, man, oh man, this is where it's done. The 70 years have already started a few years earlier, but now he's going, this is it. And from that point on is when we jump into Ezra, where we're going to start. And it's interesting because the last two verses uh, of chapter 26 of Second Chronicles are actually the first two verses of Ezra, but there's a 70-year gap that happens there. And so the 70-year uh, the 70 years ended in 536 BC when Cyrus, the king of Persia, made a proclamation to send the children of Israel back to their land where they would once again become a nation. And man, oh man, is that one of the biggest miracles. Where, where, where a nation who has been taken out of their land for more than a generation, which is about 40 years, they've never come back to become a nation once again. And this is what's happening after 70 years. And so this is huge for this nation, for this small little nation that, that God has put his name in. The, the, the one that, that he has become their God and they have become his people. And God was going to use the nation of Israel and wanted to use the nation of Israel as a beaming light to, to, to just expose who God is to all the other nations and, and to challenge them because of their sin. So from, again, the end of, of 2 Chronicles 20, or 36, verse 21, which I just read to you, and the last two verses of that chapter... They span 70 years. And again, it ends up being the two first verses of, of Ezra now. And we're still not into Ezra yet. We're still not there. That's what I'm telling you. It was going to be a long intro. And the more I do this kind of stuff, the longer it's going to take. So I'll, I'll get right in. Now, the book of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther conclude the historical books that, that are found in the present uh, canonical order, you know, in the order that, that they were uh, put in. And they cover from the years 538 B.C. to about 430 B.C. And so um, 430 B.C., right after that is when God goes silent for about 400 years until Jesus is born, until we get into the, the New Testament. And so the book of Ezra is divided in two sections. There's 10 chapters in all, but it's divided into two, two sections. The first uh, six chapters from verse, chapter 1 to chapter 6, the main character there is a guy by the name of Zerubbabel. Um, and he covers from the years 538 to 515. And Zerubbabel covers the, the, the first 23 years of the, the, the book of, of Ezra. The first 22 years. And, and, and he is the one that got that or, or received the edict to go and to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And so it is a rubble bell, the one that, he's like the main man here. He is the one that does all this building. And then from, from chapter 6 to chapter 7 of, of Ezra, there's a 57-year lapse or, or, or gap in between those two chapters. And it is in those 57 years that it is believed that that is when the book of Esther was written. That is when that whole deal takes place, still in, in, in Persia area, which is up north. And when we get into chapters 7 to chapter 10, then the main character is Ezra. 
And it is into, in chapter 7 that the first time Ezra's name is mentioned. And so here we have a book that's entitled to him, but he's not even mentioned until the latter part of the book. And he, he is on the scene there. I mean, he, he's been around for a bit, but he is on the scene, those, those last, you know, chapter 7 to 12, from 458 to 456. So he's only around for basically about two years. And so the book of Esther spans about 82 years in total which I, I find it fascinating because, again, as I've been studying this, I'm going, oh my gosh, and I'm a timeline kind of guy, and I've showed Serge with you guys all kinds of timelines, but you're looking at this timeline, you're going, oh my goodness, there's so much that's going on there. And even though Ezra is the author of this book, and it is believed, but I'm not quite sure, that he could also be the author of First and Second Chronicles. But don't quote me on that. Um, some other sources say that. I didn't say it. I'm just kind of relaying what I've read. Um, but it's quite possible. But it's interesting because this could have very well been called the book of Zerubbabel. Or it could have been split into two small books, Zerubbabel and Ezra. But it didn't. And somehow, maybe because Zerubbabel is a hard name, I don't know. <laughs> but that's the essence of the book of, of Ezra. Now, we're not into it yet. We'll get there in a bit. Now, the post-exile prophets that would have been covering this time period, because again, I shared with you that Daniel, Ezekiel, and Obadiah were on the exile part. They were away. The post-exile period prophets would be Haggai, or Haggai, Haggai, Zechariah, and both of those would have written their books around the time of Zerubbabel. And then we have Malachi, the last book of the Bible. And he, he would be writing his book right at the end of Nehemiah's book and, and his time period. Because after Malachi is done, just around that time frame is when God goes silent for 400 years. And we get into the, the, the New Testament. And so I just find it fascinating. And so my hope is that we will be covering Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther in this year sometime. Um, I don't know um, if, how, how we're going to do it, but we're going to do it, okay? So let's just read the first chapter. Now we're going to get into it. I don't know how many minutes that took, but most of you guys are still awake with me, right? You guys still hanging in there? Okay, are we in Ezra? Are we in the book of Zerubbabel? Let's just call it the book of Zerubbabel and be too, too hard, huh? Zerubbabelus. Anyways, Ezra, chapter 1. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put in it, put it in writing, saying, <coughs> Verse 2, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me. 
and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, who is among you of all his people. May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judea, and build a house to the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men in his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the free will offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Then all the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, with all whose spirit God had moved, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all those who were around them encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with precious things besides all that was willing all that was willingly offered. King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put in the temple of his gods. And Cyrus said, or Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them out by the hand of Mithradeth, the treasurer, and counted them out to Shishbazar, the prince of Judah. This is the number of them, 30 gold um, platters. Thank you. I'm looking at it. I can't figure it out. (laughs) 30 gold platters, 1,000 silver platters, 29 knives, 30 gold basins, 410 silver basins, and of a similar kind, and a thousand other articles. All the articles of gold and silver were 5,400. All these Shishbazar Shishbazar, um, took with the captives who who were brought from uh, Babylon to Jerusalem. And so as we go back to verse 1 and kind of look a little bit closer at what is going on here, it says, now in the first year of, of uh, Cyrus, the king of Persia, this Cyrus guy, um, he, he, he was the one that kind of oversaw the whole Persian empire, this whole Persian realm. It would end up being the, the Medo-Persians after a while, but, but he was the king that oversaw this, this vast, vast area. And, and if you look at, at one of the maps that, that I had kind of been looking at, it is, it is like going all the way from like Palestine, uh, um, India and Pakistan, what we know now, and it would cover that whole area of Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, all the way through Turkey, and then headed down through Syria, Lebanon, Israel, all the way down to Egypt. All that was his his domain. And, you know, that, that was huge in that time. And so this guy had so much property and so much that he, he had been covering. And so he ended up 
drafting this, this proclamation that would allow the Israelites, those people that had been taken away from their town or from their um, country years ago, and, and to, that, that they would be able to, to return their, to their land and to rebuild the temple. Now, what's happening here is different than what's happening with Nehemiah, because Nehemiah, he goes back to rebuild Jerusalem. These guys are going back, Zerubbabel, he's going back to rebuild the temple. And, and so he makes this proclamation, it tells us, in the first year of his reign, which would have been the year uh, 538 B.C. But this was the first, the first year that he reigned over Babylon. He wasn't new at this. He had been kings, a king over many territories for about 20 years already. So he's been in the, in the groove already of, of understanding this, this whole territory. But when they, the, the Medo-Persians came in and took over Babylon, now he became not only the king of Persia, but the king of Babylon as well, which was huge, uh, a, a huge position for him to be taking. And so he had been in power since about 559 B.C. when he became uh, a king of a place called uh, Anshan, which was uh, in modern-day Iran, a, a place in that area. And then he became the Medo-Persian king in 550 B.C. And then he conquered Babylon in October of 539 B.C. And that is when he became the king of Babylon as well. Now, even though Cyrus did not worship the God of Israel. Cyrus's concern was to establish the people of all that region to either send them back or to keep them in their place where they would go back to worship their God. He wasn't afraid of that. He wasn't afraid that they would leave his gods, but he was encouraging them to go back to their lands and to establish them once again. And the main reason was that they would go back to their countries in the hopes that their various gods in their various parts of this empire would be praying for him and for his gods, which were Baal and Nebo. Um, I found it fascinating as I was looking at this study, there's a, this thing called the famous Cyrus Cylinder. I guess that, that happened was in, in 538 B.C. And, and it is just the cylinder that has all this writings on it. It's cracked up right now, but they put it back together. But it has a lot of this information on there. Um, and, and it is recorded, or it records the capture of Babylon. And, and, it, and this program of repatronizing patronizing yeah um the 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 people to their homelands and and one of the things one of the statements that is in that cylinder it says this quote may all the gods whom i have resettled in their sacred cities daily ask bell and nebo for a long life for me and so it's interesting because to him, it's like, yeah, I'm going to send you guys back. But his thought was, and you guys will pray to your God and your God will be praying to my God or for me that I would have long life. And so, you know, he's a little conniving around there. We're kind of going, man, what a good king. And he probably was. 
but he worshiped other gods and his gods were more important than any other gods. But he's going, hey, bro, I'll take anybody's prayers. <laughs> you go pray for me. I don't care, man. You go back to your little hometown and you guys call upon your God. I'll help you build your own temple and you call out to your God so I could be or have long life. And so when it says in verse 1 that, that, by the, the, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. <clears throat> Again, the fulfillment of Jeremiah's words were totally a God thing. It was God's doing that he was doing this, these 70 years of captivity in Babylon had now or were now coming to an end. And the first deportation of the Jews happened in 605 B.C., and, and Cyrus, he decrees, his decree comes out um, about 538 which, uh, B.C., which was about 67 years into this 70-year this period. And so when the people returned to Jerusalem and built the altar and the temple and started building the temple, it was about uh, 536 B.C., and so which would end up to about just about the 70 years, and they were up. And this is what Jeremiah says, that his words would be fulfilled. In Jeremiah 29, 10, Thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. Earlier in Jeremiah 25, verses um, Verses uh, 11 and 12, it says, And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will come to pass when 70 years are completed that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. And so now that he's done dealing with those people, man, he's bringing his people back and he had prophesied. And now the words that Jeremiah had spoken so many years earlier when he was crying out continually to the southern kingdom and they were calling him a traitor and throwing him in prison because he kept on saying, hey, don't fight this, guys. It's bigger than both of us, man. <laughs> don't fight this. Just let it go, man. Don't fight the Chaldeans because you're going to be in captivity for seven years, 70 years. And he had prophesied that and it now has come to pass. And it says in verse one still, it says, and the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and he put it in writing. <clears throat> Proverbs 21, one says, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord and like rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. And even though, I, and I love the fact that even though Cyrus was not a worshiper of God, the God of Israel, the God of Israel was still in control of that guy. And, and, and I think that's why it's so important for us to be praying for our leaders, for, to be praying for other countries. Because I don't care who they are, I don't care what's happening in their countries, God is bigger than their king, their dictator, their, their president, their prime minister, whoever it is, what, whatever God has spoken, it will come to pass and he will deal with these people. And that's why we're, we're exhorted in First Timothy that we are to pray for those in authority. 
And again, here we have this man who has been, who is in authority. He seems like a great guy, Osiris. But God, God was the one that was shifting him and moving him and putting things in place. Oh, he thought he was going to benefit from the prayers of other people. But it's interesting that God was the one that used him to take care of this. And so he says here that, that um, where am I at? In verse 2, it says, And the Cyrus, king of Persia, he said, All the kingdoms of the earth uh, of the Lord, God of, of heaven, ha, he has given me and he has commanded me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah or Judea, Judah. God had promised this Jewish remnant that, they, that, that he would rise up a man by the name of Cyrus as his servant to restore all the fortunes, all the, the prosperity that these people had. And it was under the, the guidance of the Holy Spirit that the prophet Isaiah referred to Cyrus by name 150 years before he was ever born. Just like we saw in, in 2 Kings when Josiah's name was mentioned like a few hundred years before he was ever born. Same thing happens here that Isaiah, um, he, he mentions his name in, in Isaiah 44 and 45. And again, it, it's interesting because he made this decree and God said that he would make this decree. Uh, Josephus, the historian, says that, that Cyrus was shown the prophecy in Isaiah 44, and he wanted to fulfill it. Whether it's true or not, I, I don't know. But that would be interesting that he would see his name and knowing that it was written 150 years earlier, going, I got to do this. He's, he's commanded me to do this. And so in Isaiah 44, 28, it says, Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built. And to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. In verse, in verse 1 of the next chapter, 45, it says, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, his right hand I have held to subdue nations before him and to loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. And a little later in chapter 45 of Isaiah, verse 13, he says, I have raised him up in righteousness and I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city and let my exiles go free. Not, not for a price nor reward, says the Lord of hosts. And I love that, man. That, that God had already orchestrated this whole thing, man. And, and I don't care how powerful King Cyrus was, man, and all the land that he had, God was directing his steps. God was the one that was preparing him for this very purpose, calling him his servant, calling him, you know, the, a, a righteous man, that he, he was righteous and stuff like that. And, and God was the one that was leading him. He says, who is among, who is among you of all his people? He says in verse 3, in his proclamation, Cyrus was opening up the gates, basically, for, for whoever wanted to go back to return, to return. He opened it up to all the Jews. He says, whoever wants to go, whoever's among the people, 
then you go. Go with my blessing, <laughs> if, if you will. Saying, may his God be with him. And probably in the back of his mind, he's probably going, and don't forget to pray for me. <laughs> that I might have long life. And then he says in verse 4, and whoever is left, because not everybody wanted to go back, but whoever is left where they were at, in any place where he dwells, let the man, let the man of this place, of his place, help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the freewill offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And it's almost like we see the, the, this resemblance of the exodus um, that happened years ago with the children of Israel out of Egypt. Now we're seeing it, the exodus from the northern kingdom come back down to their land. Again, both of them were coming back to their land eventually. And yet, this time, this time they didn't have to go and ask their neighbors for provision as they kind of plundered the Egyptians and took a lot of the stuff. And they're going, here, get out of here. You know, um, here the king, he proclaims that whoever's staying behind, hey, help your neighbor. Give them the provision that they need. Whatever they need, you supply for them. And not just the gold and the silver, but, but all the goods and all the livestock. And, and, and on top of that, the free will offerings. So that when they get back and they build their temple and their, their altars, they have something to offer. And so again, what an amazing thing that God is doing here in the lives of these people as they're headed back. And then verses 5 and 6, it says that all the heads of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, all with all whose spirit God had moved, arose to go up and to build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all the people and all those around, they encouraged them as they went. And so all these guys that get together, and, and it's, it's, it's these guys, the, these religious leaders of the day who have this heart to go back home. Again, not everybody wanted to go back home, but these guys, they knew what Jerusalem was all about. Again, they had been there for 70 years. A lot of the people had died out. A lot of people were born in captivity. There was probably a few, maybe some of these guys who were just in their old age going, I get to go back to Jerusalem. I will go. I will make that trek back all the way so that I can see the land of my fathers once again. And so they get together, these two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, the southern kingdoms. Again, they come back uh, from exile and, and they go back to to rebuild the temple and the house of the Lord. And the Jews who, who, who returned would total uh, nearly 50,000 men that would come back. There was uh, 49,897 of these guys who returned. And we'll see that in the next chapter. Um, and the neighbors were, were the ones that, that were encouraging these people and they obeyed the king by, by giving them what they needed, contributing everything that was needed to them. And I love this portion right here where it says, with all whose spirit God moved, arose up and built. And, and, and it was great because nobody was coerced to do the work of the Lord. It, 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 it was something that you did freely. And even as, I, as you're looking at it, it's, it's like, man, nobody was putting a trip on them that they had to go back. Nobody was saying, well, if you're any kind of a Jew you would be going back to your hometown instead of staying here. You know how people can do that to us? Well, if you're any kind, any kind of a Christian, you would be serving. 
you'll be doing that. And it's so easy, even, even for leadership, to, to put guilt trips on people. It's like, hey, man, if you're any kind of a Christian, we need help in the back back there. <laughs> and so who's Christians in here? You know, that, that, that we could put trips on people like that. But, but, but it's way better, it's way better when the Spirit of God moves upon people's lives to say, here I am, Lord, use me. Any way you want to use me, Lord, I, I, I'm just a, a, a worthless servant, you know, that, 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 that is so grateful that you've, you've saved me, man. Here am I. And I'll put that guilt trip on you right now. Um, <laughs> but, but it's so easy to do that. But I love the fact that these guys, man, it was a free will offering of them getting up and going because the Spirit moved on them. And I truly believe that, again, if you're being pressured into ministry stuff, it's like, don't do it, man. Fight it. Tell the pastor no. Don't tell me no. Tell Pastor Daniel no. But <laughs> I'll get my feelings hurt. Um, but you know what I'm saying? Because, again, we don't want to coerce anybody to do anything that the Spirit of God is not moving us to do. And, and, and that we would take lessons from that. And so the people encouraged them to go. And then from verse 7 to, to about verse 11 here, it says that even King Cyrus, all of a sudden he started bringing out all the articles that King Nebuchadnezzar, when, when he started coming in, 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 in the three different deportations that happened, he began to take articles out of the house of the Lord. But those kings at that time were letting them take them. And they were giving it to them. And so, so Cyrus, all of a sudden, he's going, man, hey, there's all this stuff that belongs to your God. And it's, one of, it's in one of the temples of, that, that King Nebuchadnezzar held. And so let's get these things out. Let's give them back to the people. And he gives them to this treasure guy, Mithrathedeth, the treasure. And, and, and was counted them out by Shishbazar. And some believe that Shishbazar here is actually the name of Zerubbabel, but in the name that they gave him up in captivity area. And so it's quite possible that that's who it is because it says that he was a prince of Judah. And, and, and um, Zerubbabel ends up being the grandson of, I think it's uh, Jehoiachin, the, one of the final kings of the southern kingdom that he had been taken up to Babylon and put in prison, and he lived a good long while, about 30 years up there, that it's quite possible that Zerubbabel was his grandson, and he kind of lives, you know, brings that lineage of David back into this picture, because Zerubbabel ends up being in the lineages of, of Jesus in, in, in the Gospels there. And so in, in, in verse 39, uh, all of a sudden he starts uh, numbering them, all these articles, it says there's 30 platters, uh, 1,000 silver platters, and 29 knives, and 30 gold basins. And I thought, whoa, 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 whoa. There's a knife missing here. Because there's 30 platters <laughs> and 30 basins. How is it that there's 29? Somebody's ripping the Lord off here, man. And, and, and so I'm sure they're still looking for that knife, man. OJ probably put it somewhere, but <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah, that was a long time ago, too. But, but I like the preciseness here, you know, that, that, that again, everything was, was numbered off and, and everything was accounted for, for the, except for that one knife. But maybe there was only 29 when they took them. I don't know. Maybe somebody snatched, you know, put it back here. 
Anyways, and altogether there was like like 24 or, or yeah, uh, 2,499 articles in verses 9 and 10. But then it says that there was 5,400 articles altogether. And so there was probably other things that came in that weren't as prevalent as these things, maybe smaller little things. I don't know. Um, but they gave them all to Shishbazar and he took the uh, took with the captives who were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. And I love that portion, just that last part, as I, as I underline that, that last portion for, for me, I underline other stuff. But that portion where it says that he brought the captives that were brought, or he, the captives that were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem, because when we finished our study the last time, when we were in Second Kings, the people from Jerusalem were being taken to Babylon. And it's done. The 70 years, God is faithful. God is faithful. He prophesied through the prophet Jeremiah that it would be for 70 years and he kept his word. And it's interesting because, again, this whole thing has to deal with the remnant that was left up in, uh, up in, in, in Babylon, that God was not going to abhor them forever. He was punishing them. He was allowing them to go uh, through what they had to go through because of their disobedience. But as we read earlier through Jeremiah, he says, I'm still your God. Even though you got to go do all this stuff, I, I, I will not leave you. I will not forsake you, even though it seemed like he did. And guys, when, when, when we're being disobedient, we've gone through our times of just kind of just going back to those high places, doing those things that are not good in our lives. And God begins to, to chasten us as his children. It's not because he hates us. It's not because he's turned his back on us. It's to, to, to remind us of his goodness and his grace because what we see here is that God is faithful. He is faithful. He will always be faithful to his word. And if he has spoken it as he did through Isaiah and through Jeremiah, it will come to pass. And so that last portion. Now, chapter 2. Now, we're not going to get into chapter 2. Don't freak out right now. Um, there's a lot of names, and, and, and I'm going to work really, really hard to pronounce every single one of them next week. And so your homework, actually, because I'm not going to do that, is you, whoever can come up and, and, you know, practice every name, I will allow you to come up and name every one of them off for us next week, okay? So and you're probably going, in a heartbeat. It's like, then I don't want you up here if it's that easy for you. Never mind. So we'll see how we're going to do chapter two. But pray for me, because I don't know how I'm going to do chapter two yet, okay? Uh, but there's a lot of stinking names. There's a lot of names there. And you know me, man. I already freak out when there's like two or three of them. And I start massing them up. It's like, dang it. <laughs> so we'll see how chapter two goes, man. Invite a friend next week. <laughs> Let's just go watch our pastor just kind of burn right now. <laughs> Now, don't do that. No, invite a friend anyways. You know what I'm saying? It's like, no, don't invite nobody. Um, no, that's not what I'm saying. Anyways, let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for tonight, Lord. Thank you for just allowing us to get into this book. You know how nervous I am, Lord, and nervous I was to even think that I could even uh, jump into a book like this, Lord. But I just thank you for allowing me the privilege of studying, of, of being diligent, Lord God, to to, to get all this information that, that I was able to put down on some notes, Lord. I thank you for all that, Lord. But I pray that, Lord, as I've been able to deliver this, that again, 
Lord God, we would be reminded of your faithfulness, of your goodness, Lord. The fact that you would use a, 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 a pagan king to minister to your people, Lord. Father, what an amazing thing that you, you prophesied about this man 150 years before he was ever born. What an amazing thing, Lord. And so, Lord, again, we thank you that we're able to get into this portion of, of Scripture in the OT, Lord God, where we could uh, just see how things begin to get rebuilt after the disobedience caused a lot of this destruction. And I thank you for your faithfulness, Lord, that we would never forget that you are faithful, you are always good, Lord. Help us to always stay on the, on the side of being obedient to you, Lord, of wanting more of who you are and less of who we are, Lord, because that only leads us to disobedience. So thank you so much, Lord. We bless you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.